Hello, this is Ohavia Phillips. And I'm Dennis Reed. And as members of Charlotte's Black community, we're proud to call the Queen City home. And with Charlotte Love Notes, we're sharing our love story and spotlighting the Black-owned businesses that make this city so special. That's right, the restaurants, shops, and more that we love and express the craft and culture of Charlotte's Black community. So head to charlottesgotalot.com to see our love notes and plan your trip. And show your love to the community that inspires us. Coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the award-winning Parareality Radio. Good evening, everybody. My name's Sandman, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. Well, it is Friday, September 21st, 2019, and of course, you know that it means it's time for another episode of your favorite paranormal podcast, Parareality Radio. Okay, so I guess by now, uh, just about everyone has heard about the results of the Loch Ness DNA Project, which were released earlier this week. As you can guess, this definitely interested me, and I've been following the project off and on now ever since I, uh, I found out about it not too long ago, and the results of this project may be startling for some and expected for others. Some people may be pissed off and some may be saying like, you know, I told you so, but no matter what side you're on, you have to admit that this was something that really needed to be done. And it looks like as far as I'm concerned anyway, that we finally have an end to the mystery of what the Loch Ness monster actually is. And that's what I'll be talking about tonight on Parareality Radio. However, before I get started, let me tell you how you can get in contact with me here in the show because you know there are several different ways that you can do it. First of all, you can visit the show website, parareality.com. Um, send me an email, sandman at parareality.com. You can also find the Parareality Radio Facebook page just by looking for Parareality Radio in a Facebook search. And, uh, you know, I keep forgetting this is like the thing. You have to ask people to like your page. So here it goes. Please don't forget to like the Parareality Radio page on Facebook. don't know what that's going to get me, but apparently it's important. And uh, also, I am on Twitter, and you can follow me there. My handle on Twitter is at Radio. That's P-A-R-A-R-E-A-L-R-A-D-I-O at Parareal Radio. And of course, you can always call me, <clears throat> excuse me, you can always call me on this on the studio line. <clears throat> Got a little something in my throat, sorry. You can always still call the studio line at 615-692-1170. That number to call once again is 615-692-1170. Leave me a message on the studio line, and just be aware that I will probably play your comment back on the show. Simply just by leaving me a message is giving me your permission to play your comment back. If you don't want me to do so, you need to let me know somewhere in your message. And of course, I'm always in the studio these days working on the show off and on, so I, I just may actually decide to answer the phone and you can have a conversation with me, but you, you never know. Unless you call. So if you have some sort of comment you want me to play, 
got a question you want to ask, if you got a story that you just want to tell, just leave me a message. Leave it on the studio line, 615-692-1170. I believe that there is something like a, maybe like a five-minute long uh, timer that you have to, to leave your, your message. Uh, if you if it happens to be over five minutes, just call back and continue on. Just let me know, all right? Well, <clears throat> so those are all the different ways that you can get in contact with me here on the show, ways that you can interact with me, Sandman. Let me go over them one more time. Facebook, Parareality Radio page on Facebook. Don't forget to like it. Follow me on Twitter at Parareal Radio. Email me, Sandman at Parareality.com. Or finally, you can call me on the studio line at 615-692-1170. Seven zero. Those are all the different ways you can get in touch with the show, interact with me here on Parareality Radio. All right. You know, I, I brought back the email segment of the show. I, I wasn't doing a lot of fan mail for a while, and um, I don't know why I stopped doing the um, fan mail segment. I just, you know, how it, it, it doesn't take too long to... to develop a habit, you know, and, uh, I just, uh, stopped doing the fan mail for whatever reason. And all of a sudden it became a habit to not do it. And I just didn't do it, but, uh, I've been trying to bring it back. So every episode now I am reading a, uh, fan mail and this one comes from Brian, whose last name I will withhold. And Brian writes, and this is in reference to actually a couple of different episodes that, uh, I've done here. It's uh, the Hollywood Star Whackers episode that I did with uh, part-time co-host Eric. As a matter of fact, that very first episode that Eric and I did together was Hollywood Star Whackers. And uh, this also relates to the uh, last episode that Eric and I did together with the Epstein conspiracy theories, which I'm going to have more on that later. Cue the creepy clock in the background. It always happens every show. So anyway... Brian writes, Michael Hutchins, Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington, Kate Spade, David Carradine. Were they all killed like Epstein? Did it go down like the assassination of Mahmoud al-Mabou in Dubai? I know I probably screwed that up because I am horrible at pronouncing freaking names like that. But the assassination of Mahoud al-Mabou uh, happened um, on the 19th of January, all the way back in 2010. He was in a hotel room in Dubai. Um, he was actually a co-founder of the military wing of Hamas, and he was wanted by the Israeli government for the kidnapping and murder of two Israeli soldiers in 1989. And he like purchased some weapons from Iran for use in the Gaza Strip and stuff like that. And and those are just a couple of things that have been cited as possible motives for his assassination. He was uh, apparently um, killed with a combination of a muscle relaxant and uh, pillow suffocation. And this attracted international attention in part due to allegations that it was ordered by the Israeli government and carried out by Mossad agents. Like 33 people were involved supposedly in this thing, and they uh, had like fake passports and stuff. So this was a big deal. So, Brian, thanks for your email. Um, I'm not going to compare Epstein's death to uh, Muhammad's death. Um, However, you know, Michael Hutchins, Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington, Kate Spade, David Carradine, um, you know, they all committed, um, suicide. And what's interesting about this is the, uh, Michael Hutchins and, uh, Kate, no, no, excuse me, Michael Hutchins and David Carradine suicides were probably, uh, accidental Suicides. Well, actually, Chris Cornell, you can throw that in there, too. How could I forget Chris Cornell? So you got Chris Cornell, Michael Hutchins, and David Carradine, who were all ruled as, as 
suicide, but in all reality, it was probably an accidental suicide. But when you look at all three of those, you'll see that it was that all three of them were kind of under strange circumstances. Um, Michael Hutchins, God, it's been so long since he died. I can't remember the exact uh, circumstances behind his death. Uh, a lot of people say it was some sort of autoerotic thing, kind of like David Carradine. Now, his death definitely was autoeroticism and uh, just went a little bit too far with it. Chris Cornell um, had nothing to do with autoeroticism, but I think what happened with him was he accidentally took a little bit too much of his... Um, uh, anti-anxiety medication and really just uh, lost control, didn't realize what it was that he was doing. And then uh, Chester Bennington, Kate Spade, I don't know the circumstances surrounding their deaths. I do know that both of them were suicide. So you've got all these people here who were victims of suicide, except for the last one, Mahmoud, and he was definitely killed. Um, so I don't know, um, I don't know that you can, can take Michael Hutchins, Chris Cornell, Chester Bennington, Kate Spade, and David Carradine and say that they were, that they were killed like Epstein. Um, they had, um, no significant criminal past to speak of. I'm sure probably they been arrested at some point in time for maybe drugs or DUIs or something like that. But I mean, they weren't, uh, as far as we know, child molesters and, and sexual deviants like Epstein was. Um, if you haven't listened to the Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy theories show, you really need to, to check it, check that out. Uh, that was the last episode that I did a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, Eric and I, oh, there's my creepy clock again. Eric and I are going to be back in the studio and we're going to do a follow-up to the Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy theories. That's going to be in the next show, but I'll, uh, I'll tell you about that. So Brian, thank you for the email. I, I can't answer your question. Uh, I can say that I don't think that uh, the first group of people were killed like Jeffrey Epstein. I don't think that um, anybody... Uh, had any ill will towards them or had a reason to kill them. Uh, the assassination of Mahmoud, um, I don't think you could rate Jeffrey Epstein up there with anything like that either. Um, I just think that, um, I mean, it's a good, I guess, uh, interesting theory that you've got there, but I think it's a little far, uh, far stretching there, far reaching. I don't, I don't think that those have anything, uh, to do with one another. So thanks Brian for, uh, for that email. I really appreciate that. Always good to hear from the fans. If you got an email or question about the show, comment, whatever, once again, you know how to get in touch with me, email the show Sandman at parareality.com. You can call me on the studio line, leave a, your comment or question 615-692-1170 or tweet it to me at Parareal Radio. Go on the show Facebook page. Parareality Radio on Facebook, and you can ask me a question on Facebook. And while you're there, like the page. Apparently that's important for Facebook people. So now I've wasted the first 13 minutes or so of the show with all this. Let's get into talking about why we're all here in the first place, which is the Loch Ness Report. So in case you have been, I don't know, living under a rock for the last couple of weeks or or maybe you just don't follow stuff like this, which if you're listening to this show, I'm sure that you do follow this kind of info. But unless you've been, I don't know, you know, living under a rock or been in prison or, or maybe you just don't have TV or Internet anymore until now because you listen to the show. Didn't make sense, did it? But anyway... This has made big news. As a matter of fact, I just got finished watching the two-hour documentary on the Travel Channel about this report. And this has to do with the Loch Ness Monster. Does the Loch Ness Monster exist? If so, what is it? And how can we find out? So, one of the most famous and beloved cryptids in all the world has got to be Scotland's Loch Ness Monster. 
Reports of this thing describe it as a large, long-necked beast, kind of like a plesiosaur. Yet, Nessie has remained, curiously, elusive to any type of scientific searches. There's been multiple sonar scans done of the lock, and they basically come up blank. But there's more than one way to skin a monster, right? And an international team of scientists led by Dr. Neil Gimmel from the University of Otago in New Zealand has just revealed the first results from an eDNA analysis of the waters of Loch Ness. Now remember, this is just the first round of results. They're still releasing some, they've still got some more stuff that they've got to study. <clears throat> so in case you don't know what eDNA is, eDNA stands for... Hello, this is Ohavia Phillips. And I'm Dennis Reed. And as members of Charlotte's Black community, we're proud to call the Queen City home. And with Charlotte Love Notes, we're sharing our love story and spotlighting the Black-owned businesses that make this city so special. That's right, the restaurants, shops, and more that we love and express the craft and culture of Charlotte's Black community. So head to charlottesgotalot.com to see our love notes and plan your trip. And show your love to the community that inspires us environmental DNA or eDNA is what they, they, they're calling it. This is DNA that's collected from a variety of environmental samples like soil, water, snow, or supposedly even air. And you get these samples rather than directly sampled from like an individual organism, you get them from the soil, snow, water, air, stuff like that. So as various organisms interact with the environment, DNA is basically expelled. It's kind of like shed off and it accumulates in their surroundings. Some example sources of eDNA include, but not necessarily limited to, things like feces, mucus, shed skin, like from a snake or even humans, carcasses, and hair. These samples can be analyzed by high-throughput DNA sequencing methods known as metagenomics, metabarcoding, and single-species detection, and they get rapid measurement and monitoring of biodiversity. Now, in order to better differentiate between organisms within a sample, DNA metabarcoding is used in which the sample is analyzed and uses previously studied DNA libraries to determine what organisms are present. In other words, they take the DNA sample and compare it against other known samples, other known organisms that are supposed to be in the area or even not in the area, just a wide sample. So I have seen a couple of uh, TV shows where this eDNA um, technique was used, uh, the first one that comes to mind was, and I, I can't remember the name of the the series, but it was like a limited series on the search for the Yeti. And uh, this guy used eDNA uh, up in the Himalayas to try to uh, find Yeti DNA. And they found a lake and like an isolated lake in a basin and took a whole bunch of samples from this lake and they didn't find any unknown DNA that would be considered to be a Yeti, but they did find some DNA of some uh, like goat or antelope or something like that, that they thought was either extinct or wasn't supposed to be in the area. It's been a couple of years since I've seen this. Maybe it was last year. It doesn't matter. But anyway, it, it, it does work. And this is the second time that I've seen anything that uh, had to do with, with eDNA. The results of the Loch Ness survey come after the scientists who were with Dr. Gimmel took hundreds of samples of water from Loch Ness and other nearby locks. DNA from each sample was captured extracted and sequenced and this gave the team 500 million sequences that when compared against global DNA databases show a comprehensive picture of life 
that's present in the lock. The bacteria, the fish, and everything else in between. Most species are so small you can barely see them, but there are a few that are larger. And the big question here is, is there anything big enough to explain the sorts of sightings people have made over the years that have led to this myth or this legend of a monster or creature in Loch Ness? One of the most popular theories is that there might be some sort of, you know, Jurassic Age reptile or population of Jurassic Age reptiles, such as a plesiosaur that's present in Loch Ness. Now, the legend of the Loch Ness Monster, it dates back about 1,500 years, so it's been going on a long time. But it wasn't until the first reported sightings in the infamous doctor's photo in the 1930s that it began to capture people's imagination. The Loch Ness Monster, or Nessie as it's so affectionately called, has been a strangely elusive creature ever since. And the photo the previously mentioned doctor's photo from the 1930s all the way back then was not too long ago revealed to have been faked. It was a toy submarine, I think like mounted on some, some wood or something like that. It was, it was, it was faked anyway. Now rumors of a strange creature lurking in the, in the murky waters of Loch Ness continue to abound though, despite the fact that this picture has been proven to be faked by the doctor, the most famous picture by the way, of Nessie ever. And I'm sure by now you've all seen it. It looks it looks good. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to deny it. It looks good, but there's always been something about it. And I've been seeing this picture since I was a kid. There's always something about it that you just quite couldn't put your finger on. It was like, I don't know what it is about this picture, but this this looks looks pretty good, but it might not be real. Well, it wasn't. It was a fake. So there was, and this may or may not be a surprise, depending on your feelings about the Loch Ness Monster, absolutely no evidence of any Jurassic-era animal DNA, including plesiosaurs, in any of the samples that Dr. Gimmel and his team tested. In fact, there's no evidence at all to support that a Loch Ness monster in reptilian form ever lived in Loch Ness at all. The environmental DNA data doesn't support the belief that the monster is a plesiosaur. Nor did they find shark DNA or catfish DNA, anything like that. And those are two other theories for Nessie's identity that have come out in recent years. But that doesn't mean that the search was fruitless. There was one other theory, and it was floated very early on, as far back as the first reported sighting in 1933, that this creature, Nessie, could in fact be a giant eel. Now, this theory was later dismissed, but Dr. Gimmel and his team, their research shows that that idea not really the eel itself, but the idea kind of has legs after all. The study found a large amount of eel DNA. Now, eels are very plentiful in Loch Ness. In fact, eel DNA was found at pretty much every location that was sampled. And researchers had earlier suggested that a giant eel could, in fact, explain some of the sightings at least. That idea then lost popularity, but as theories about the extinct reptiles became more common, the eel theory went away. But there have been ongoing reports over the years of very large eels by a number of witnesses. Specifically, the eel DNA is from uh, European eels, which does present another problem, apparently. As far as biologists know, these eels don't grow any larger than around five feet, maybe a little less, but five feet is about the biggest you're going to see these things. Now, to be consistent with Nessie reports, the eel would have to be quite a bit bigger because everybody that's ever reported seeing Nessie has reported seeing this, this huge creature. Even though you don't see, no one has seen the whole thing, 
the way that they describe it with the humps and, and everything, they say that it is a large creature. Excuse me, I had to get some from my throat there and a drink. So how does that explain? If, if an eel is Nessie and these eels only grow to five feet, how does that explain the large whatever it was that people are reported seeing? Now, the data, of course, there's no way that it can reveal the size of these eels that are shedding their, their DNA into the lock. But the whole idea isn't without precedent. And another strange beast sighted in a highland lock could have been an eel. You'll have to go all the way back to 1865, and reportedly a huge sea serpent was uh, sighted in a lock in Lurebost. Now, whatever it was had an eel-like appearance. This, of course, led to the conclusion that it was, in fact, probably an eel. Now, Loch Lurebost is not too far away from Loch Ness. And it makes sense that if there are eels in Loch Ness that are giant-sized eels, that there could also be giant-sized eels in lochs that surround Loch Ness and in the surrounding areas. So was this sighting in 1865 of a sea serpent, was it an eel? Well, the descriptions describe it as having an eel-like appearance. So it was probably an eel. And to further kind of like solidify this eel theory, divers have claimed that they've seen eels as thick as their legs in Loch Ness. Some of the descriptions suggest that eels with a circumference that's that large could be up to 13 feet long. And it isn't hard to imagine some people or some some people, some eels that surpass that size, like the 20-foot conger eel that was caught off the British coast back in 2015. Of course, you know, more research is going to need to be undertaken to understand how an eel fits in with the Loch Ness monster sightings, if in fact it does at all. But the team's findings revealed more about the lock than just ruling out Nessie candidates. The survey found plenty of DNA belonging to species that you wouldn't really expect to find in Loch Ness, derived from the 250 water samples and the 500 million genetic sequences taken from various areas of the lock at different depths, illustrating an environment populated by numerous species ranging from microscopic bacteria to larger creatures such as fish and mammals. The team identified the DNA of 11 species of fish, three amphibians, 22 birds, and 19 mammals. One of the more intriguing findings was the large amount of DNA from land-based species in the lock system. These included high levels of DNA from humans and a variety of species associated with us like dog, sheep, and cattle. They also detected wild species local to the area such as deer, badgers, foxes, rabbits, voles, and, and multiple bird species. These findings show eDNA surveys of major waterways may be useful for rapidly surveying the biological diversity at a regional level. So, I mean, you know, it, 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 even though it's kind of like looking for Nessie, so to speak, it's really this thing, this whole project is kind of showing us what we can really use eDNA for. And there were some other surprises, too. A lot of previously unknown microbial diversity was found in the in the eDNA results, including a microbe that usually lives in salt water. So there are still thousands of microbe species detected in the samples that have not yet been identified. So that work is ongoing. Like I said, they still have stuff they have to do. This was just the first round of, of uh, results that they have released here. Now, this isn't the first time cryptid DNA research has turned up fascinating and or unexpected results. One time, um, DNA testing 
of hair samples said to have come from Bigfoot, Yetis, and other anomalous primates turn out to be, as you can suspect, nothing of the sort. But the research did turn up turn up a uh, a tuft of fur from an extinct Paleolithic bear, which couldn't be explained. And just as that research didn't rule out the existence of Bigfoot, there's still a ray of hope for all of you Nessie fans out there. Loch Ness is vast. I mean, this thing is huge. Supposedly, you can take all of the world's population and fit it in Loch Ness three times. That's what I have been told. I don't know if that's true or not. That sounds too good to be true. But anyway, so getting back to this. So Loch Ness, obviously, is a huge lock. And given that the the eDNA signals in water kind of dissipate quickly because they, they only last a few days up to maybe just a couple of weeks at most, there's the possibility that there's something present in the lock that wasn't detected because the samples were obtained like in the wrong places at the wrong time or the metabarcoding method couldn't detect Nessie because the sequence couldn't be matched to anything in the database, in the known database. Remember, there's still some things they, they still had to check here, right? So this investigation, like every investigation before it, has no definitive proof of the Loch Ness Monster. So a guy in the uh, the documentary said something that I thought was pretty profound. He says that proving something does not exist is pretty much impossible. And that's that's kind of true. You can is you can prove all kinds of that all kinds of things exist, but proving that something doesn't exist is damn near just impossible. However, they do have a further theory to test the one of the the giant eel and that may be worth exploring in more detail this finding would suggest that at least a portion of the nessie sightings were of abnormally large eels although this description doesn't quite fit the reports that describe a more plesiosaur-like creature with a small head attached to a long neck i.e. the the 1934 sighting made by motorcyclist Arthur Grant. That's when all this started coming into effect. But provided that these reports are accurate, this could mean that the eels in question may taper along their length toward their head, giving the impression of a long neck. Or maybe there are more than one cryptid in Loch Ness. Maybe there are two cryptids in Loch Ness. Now, a paper detailing the team's findings is coming soon. And I saw a tweet from Dr. Gimmel that uh, had a link to where um, the report was. And I didn't click on it because I was at work and I didn't have time to do it. And I wish that I would have so I could read the report. But obviously the gist of it is that there's nothing to support the existence of a Loch Ness monster or any other type of prehistoric or as yet unknown creature, at least not yet. Now, if you have listened to this show from since way back in the day, when I since I first started, basically, um, you'll know that I have never um, been a believer in the Loch Ness monster, and I I know, you know, oh my God, how can you do? a podcast like this and not be a believer in the Loch Ness Monster. Well, look, I have always described myself as an open-minded skeptic, right? And just because someone tells me that there's a plesiosaur in the lake doesn't mean that I'm going to buy that. And just because I get shown some some grainy pictures or fuzzy video or out of focus video or something like that that says, here's the evidence doesn't mean that I'm going to believe it. So you have to take everything and approach it 
logically and scientifically, at least as far as I'm concerned. And I think a lot of other people would agree with me as well. And there's just nothing to support the idea that there is a plesiosaur or even a family of plesiosaurs that are in the lock. Number one, if there's just one, reportings have been around of this thing for 1,500 years. So this thing has to have an enormously long lifespan, number one. Number two, there has to be a shit ton of food in and around the lake for this thing to eat so it can survive 1,500 years. And I know that the Loch Ness is, is huge, but would there really be enough food to sustain one giant plesiosaur for 1,500 years, yet alone a family of them? There, if, if, if a plesiosaur's lifespan doesn't last 1,500 years or greater, that means there has to be a breeding population now, breeding population indicates that there has to be multiple, multiple plesiosaurs in the lock. And there's just no evidence to support that. So if there were a breeding population, one would think that you would see these things all over the place all the time. And we'd have all kinds of evidence instead of just fuzzy little grainy pictures and out of focus videos and stuff, you know? So I really doubt that the plesiosaur living in Loch Ness theory is, there's just, it, it, it's not, it's not viable. There's nothing. It's, it just, it's just not, that's not it. I don't know what else to say. There's it's, there's no plesiosaur living in Loch Ness, and, and the DNA study shows that there's no plesiosaur. Now, I hate to bust your bubble about something like that, especially if you're a believer in Loch Ness, but you can't take the evidence from this study and go, oh, we, we have to throw that out the window. You just can't do that. Now, what's going to um, be interesting in the next uh, weeks and months ahead after, you know, since this thing has been released is all the believers in Nessie. I'm, I'm anxious to see what their response to this scientific study is that you DNA evidence. You just can't fake it. Right. Uh, Maybe in the future we can do it, but as of right now, I don't think we possess the technology to fake DNA evidence. So if the DNA evidence does not support the theory of a Loch Ness Monster, how are all the people out there who believe in it going to counteract this? What's their their comeback on this? Now, if you listen to what I was saying earlier, the eDNA results degrade quickly in water. So, you know, I guess uh, on the fringes you can say, well, maybe, you know, they just didn't get the samples in the right spot at the right time uh, because, it, it, the, you know, they only last for a few days and Nessie had already been through there two days ago or a week ago or something like that. But even that is, in my opinion, kind of, you know, thin, and I think that's the best argument that you're going to be able to have against the eDNA data. Now, something else that is uh, has been proposed that I am not um, an opponent of, that I do think there could be some validity to this, is the time slip theory. What if what we're seeing is actually some sort of, there's some sort of, of, of vortex time vortex in and around the lock. And what we're seeing is actually either creatures that are momentarily coming through the vortex, or are we seeing something that's like um, a recording? Are we seeing something that happened to millions of years ago out in the lock? Now, I don't know how long the lock has been there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I don't know what the geography surrounding the lock was back in the Jurassic area millions of years ago. I can't tell you that. However, I do believe 
that there is a little bit of validity to the the time warp or the time slip theory because well there are all kinds of things that happen in not only not only on this planet but in this universe there are all kinds of things that happen that we have yet to grasp and have yet to understand and mysterious things happen all over the place ships and planes go missing in the Bermuda Triangle all the time and there's really no there's there's explanations for it but nothing that is concrete and that people can say yes this is definitely what's causing all these things so if there is some sort of vortex that occurs in the Bermuda Triangle which there's evidence for could there also be some sort of vortex in the in in Loch Ness now, I know you're saying, okay, you don't believe that there could be a creature or, or a breeding population of creatures of plesiosaurs left over from the Jurassic area living in the lock, but you'll go way out on the fringes and believe that there could be some sort of portal or time slip. Actually, yes, I think that that is a possibility. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying it's a possibility. I would like to be able to have the technology to measure and study things like that. It doesn't exist, not yet, at least not on this planet, but it is a remote possibility. And when I say remote, I mean minuscule. I mean, it's, it's, it could, could actually be there. That's a little bit, to me anyway, more plausible than one plesiosaur surviving for thousands of years or a whole breeding population of plesiosaurs that have been in this lake for millions of years. And we can only see a couple of humps every so often. And when we get pictures of it, it's grainy and blurry and out of focus and all that crap. No, but that could explain why when you do see it, that the, 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 the time slip theory or the vortex theory could explain why when you do see it and you try to take video or pictures of it, that it never comes out exactly right because of whatever interference is going on through the time slip or through this recording that you're seeing. Because after all, let's take that theory and look at ghosts and hauntings and stuff. So once again, if you listen to my show for any length of time, you know that that my theory that I've always had is that there's three types of of entities. There's there's ghosts, there's spirits, and there's poltergeists. And a ghost is your most basic. It is a well, for all intents and purposes, it is a recording of something that happened in the past. And this is usually surrounding some sort of an emotional event, most of the time tragic, but it could be something joyous. But there's a lot of emotional energy that's surrounding this, or maybe it's from something that's because of something that someone did on a routine basis. Every day the woman walked to the window on the second floor to look out over the bay to see if her lover's ship was coming back. And she did this every day for years and years and years. She had all this emotion. So what you're seeing when you see the the ghost of the woman walking to the window to look out over her, over the bay for her returning lover, that what is a recording in time. So you can take that theory and translate that to also the time slip theory which of the Loch Ness Monster, which is it is a recording in time of something that happened that we're just able to see. And we don't know how this happens. We have theories, but we don't can't pinpoint it down specifically. So to me, that makes much more sense than anything about a plesiosaur surviving in a lone plesiosaur surviving for thousands of years, it has to be millions of years in Loch Ness or even a breeding population of plesiosaurs swimming around in Loch Ness and no one's ever seen a family of them. It's like, oh look, there's five plesiosaurs swimming around. No one's ever had that. You have people who said, oh, I saw, I captured two things, two anomalous things, two, you know, 
in the water, a hump over here and a hump over there. And you look at their picture or their video and you're like, I don't see it. What WTF man, you know? So anyway, that's kind of my two cents on the whole deal. Uh, Do I think that there is a Nessie? No, I don't. I've never thought there was an Nessie. It's fun to believe. I would love to be proven wrong. I'd love for someone to have a good video of Nessie or a good picture of Nessie or hell, even capture it. Don't kill it. Capture it. Let's let's see it. You know, I would love to be proven wrong. But however, I don't think I'm ever going to be. The time recording theory that I just talked about, I think if you're seeing if if someone's seeing an actual plesiosaur or some sort of other aquatic creature from the Jurassic era or some other era i think that is going to be the most plausible um explanation for what these people are seeing and how they're able to see it now you may have Another theory, you may be saying, Sandman, you're a complete dumbass. I can't believe that you're saying these things. And that's fine. You don't have to agree with me. As a matter of fact, I don't want you to agree with everything that I say. When I started doing this podcast all the way back in 2004, before podcasting was even a thing, I never wanted to have any type of agenda, personal agenda or otherwise. I just wanted to take these unusual topics, talk to you, the listener, about them, present what I perceived as to be the facts, researched to the best of my ability, lay all that out to you and say, you make up your own mind. And if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I'm totally cool with it. I would love to hear from you guys about what you think about the Loch Ness Monster and what it is or what it could be. Or maybe you can explain to me why these eDNA results aren't valid and we had to take them and throw them away whenever it comes to the Loch Ness Monster. So, if you've got your own theory, uh, if you think I'm full of crap, if you think that the Dr. Gimmel's report is full of crap, um, you know, email me. Let me know. Sandman at parareality.com. Call in the studio line, 615-692-1170. Leave a message. Um, post on the Parareality Radio Facebook page. I mean, tweet me at Parareal Radio. Let's start a debate. I, I would love to hear some of your theories about what you think is going on at Loch Ness. Are these eDNA results are they are they valid to you or not? And I I, I welcome the debate if you want to debate. Hell, if you want to come on the show and be a guest and debate me about Loch Ness Monster existing or not, or why we should take these eDNA results, as I rattle the paper here, why we should take those and and just throw them away and not believe them. I want to hear from you guys. So you let me know what you think, and I welcome your comments. I said, if it's different than mine, that's that's great. Let's have a debate. If if you think I'm spot on, you know, you can let me know that too. I, I'm always happy to hear from from everybody. And you know that I play or I I read emails back, whether they're good or, or comments or not. I I I I read emails, and just because your theory or your opinion differs from mine doesn't mean that. I am going to automatically discount you and you should not automatically discount me. But at the same time, I don't want you to blindly believe uh, something just because I'm, I'm telling it to you. I want you to do your own research, form your own opinion, come to your own conclusion. And that is always uh, healthy, especially in 
the the realm of the paranormal and the paranormal people just doesn't mean ghosts and and demons and poltergeists and hauntings and stuff it's all things that we don't understand it's cryptozoology it's cryptozoology it's <laughs> cryptozoology it's ufos it's aliens ancient alien theory it's it's also ghosts and hauntings and, and all that sorts of stuff, but it is such a broad topic. And I want you to, you know, listen to the show, keep an open mind just because I believe in something or that I'm telling you something doesn't mean that I automatically want or expect you to have the same opinion that I do. So that's, that's my soapbox. I'm going to get off of that. And I want to, before I wind the show down, I have about 10 minutes left and I want to talk about something that I have been following ever since its inception. And it is, as I am recording this podcast this morning, and you are listening to it this evening, it is September the 20th, 2019. And that is the date of the quote-unquote Storm Area 51 event which was posted by some dude on Facebook as a joke that actually took off and had something like over 2 million people sign this petition about they're going to go storm Area 51. Now, I've been following this ever since the story broke, and I've posted numerous things about it on my social media accounts. And you know... If you followed me on social media, you know that I think that this whole Storm Area 51 thing is a bad idea. Now, the guy who came up with this whole thing, his name is uh, Matty Roberts. That's the guy who created the event. And he actually, you know, he's confirmed that it was not a real thing. He did not actually mean for people to storm Area 51. In fact, he's disavowed any responsibility for any casualties if people actually attempt to to storm this base um but he uh came up with this as a joke and it took on a life of its own i really i've seen the interviews with this guy and poor guy i kind of feel sorry for him because i don't don't think that he meant you know i i know that he did not mean for this to to get as big as what it was and i don't really think he wanted people to take it seriously but apparently there's been over 2 million people who signed this petition thing that he created and they're going a lot of them are going to area 51 and they're already starting to show up and he took they've taken this idea of storm area 51 there's my creepy clock again anyway they're taking this idea of storm area 51 and actually turned it into a music festival uh, alien stock and people who it's starting today, right? And people are already showing up for this thing. The last uh, that I saw was there's a hundred people that are gathered outside of one of the entrances to area 51 with signs and all that other sorts of stuff and demanding to be, you know, have the secrets revealed, get let in all this other sorts of stuff. And um, I'm telling you, man, this is a bad idea. This is a horribly bad idea. If you're thinking about actually storming Area 51, I urge you to please reconsider this whole thing. Um, the government has already put out warnings and said, you know, if, if you do this, you, you'll probably get shot. And they're well within their rights to do so because, um, let's face it, Area 51, top secret things go on there. And the outside world doesn't really need to know about these things. And you can say, oh, well, there's aliens there and there's technology and spaceships and all this other sorts of stuff. And maybe there is. But there's also other things there that have nothing to do with aliens and and reverse engineering UFOs and all this other sorts of stuff. But even if that's all that really is there is UFOs and alien technology, or even if there's 
none of that there. And they're just building new fighter jets or other technology. We still, I mean, the government says this is a top secret area. You don't need to be here. And if you show up and you come on the base, we can shoot you. And it's amazing that out of all the years that people have been going to Area 51 and you know, getting on the base and seeing how far they can get before they get stopped. It's just so amazing that no one has actually been shot yet. But if there's a crowd of people out there and these people start coming onto the base, I guarantee you that this is going to end bad. It'll probably be the first time where someone actually does get shot. So if you are there at Alien Stock, or if you're one of the Hundreds of people that are right now gathered outside the gates of Area 51. And you are thinking about actually storming in there, thinking you're going to find whatever. I urge you to reconsider. This is a bad, bad, bad idea. And you're probably going to get hurt. Or worse, there are worse things than getting hurt. And I urge you to all use your, uh, your, well, I was going to say your good common sense, but that kind of goes out the window when you're thinking about storming up in the area 51. I mean, uh, I don't even know what to say. You know, I'm looking on the internet right now and, um, they're saying that, um, There are people that, yeah, already someone has been... Oops, sorry about that. There, Someone's already been arrested. Um, let's see. Lincoln County Sheriff Kerry Lee estimated late Thursday that about 1,500 people had gathered at the festival sites, and more than 150 people also made the rugged trip several additional miles on bone-rattling dirt roads to get within a safe distance of the gates. Uh, One person was arrested and one person was detained by sheriff's deputies earlier this morning. I'm looking at a picture of all these people gathered out there with signs, clap alien cheeks, save E.T. from the government. People says aliens are locked up in there. Um... Jeez, there's going to be a, a news briefing later on today, some point in time. But yeah, man, this is just not going to be. Uh, it's not going to end well if people actually decide to to uh, go ahead and try to storm the gates. Um, I know that the government has said that uh, you know once again not to do it, but they've also said that they they beefed up security for this weekend. And there was also a supposedly a website that uh, that it was going to let people um, have live views of the um, the festival over via webcam. And uh, I would really like I'd really be interested in looking at those and seeing what what happens out there. But anyway, I just wanted to take a couple of minutes and say if you're out there and you're actually thinking about going onto the base this weekend, please don't do so. It's a bad idea. People are going to get hurt. People are already getting arrested and detained. Just don't do it. Bad, bad, bad idea. All right, everybody. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to wind it down. I hope that you enjoyed tonight's show. Let me know what you thought about it by sending me an email to sandman at parareality.com. If you want to know more about the show, Get online, head on over to parareality.com. That's where you can find out all kinds of information about the show. You can listen to the current and past episodes there. And if you click on the extras tab, it'll take you to a page where you can join the official Parareality Radio Forum. Free to join, by the way. You can shop in the Parareality Radio store and even watch some show videos and other things like that. Also, don't forget to look up Parareality Radio on Facebook. Like that Facebook page and follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Para Real Radio. I post a lot of interesting stuff on Facebook and Twitter, like upcoming shows and special guests, interesting articles, stuff like that. So make sure you follow me on both of my social media accounts to stay updated with what's happening in the world of Para Reality Radio. 
And you can now listen to the show on a variety of different streaming podcasting web hosts and streaming platforms, just about every kind there is out there. You can, of course, listen to the show right here on Spreaker, but you can also listen to it on Facebook and YouTube. My YouTube channel is Parareality1, the number one out behind Parareality, no spaces or underscores. It's Parareality1 on Facebook, or excuse me, on YouTube. If if you want to stream the show, you can do it from parareality.com, or you can stream it off of uh, Google Play, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, CastBox, and iHeartRadio. Still working on trying to get the iTunes thing worked out. Also, if you have a smart speaker, you can enable any of the aforementioned podcast host skills. Open them up and simply say, play the Parareality Radio podcast. So everybody, that about does it for the show. Like I said, my next show is going to be on Friday, October the 4th, 2019, which just so happens to be the date of my wedding anniversary. So I will be pre-recording a show as usual, and it'll be up and running while I'm out celebrating my wedding anniversary with my wife. Five whole years married. Uh, Anyway, next show, Friday, October 4th, 2019, 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Going to have Eric from the World We Live In podcast doing the co-host thing back in the studio, and we're going to be doing a follow-up episode to our Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy theory. So make sure you turn on, tune in, and find out. Everybody, I hope that this radio program opens up your minds to new ways of thinking, expands your consciousness, and produces a change in the way you see the world. If you wish to change, you must lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe. I hope you have a wonderful evening, a great weekend, and I'll see you again in on October the 4th. Good night, everybody. If you wish to change... You must first lift the veil of ignorance that has been cast over your eyes. Only then will you see the true power of the universe.